Hello everybody, happy new year and welcome to episode number four of the Airspace Engineering Podcast. This is the show where I interview aerospace pioneers about their stories of innovation in the aerospace industry. If you enjoy these conversations and want to support the show, then the number one thing you can do to help us out is to head over to iTunes or open up your podcast app and give us a raving review. Five stars and a great review will go a long way to get more people to listen to the show and it makes it easier for me to host the most inspiring guests. Thanks, by the way, to Zod's Holiday, who left a nice review on iTunes last month. I'll definitely keep it up, and you've got some great guests to look forward to in 2018. We'll start our show in a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering, also known as SAMPI. SAMPI is a global professional society that has been providing educational opportunities on advanced materials for more than 70 years. SAMPI's network of engineers is a key facilitator for the advancement of aerospace engineering by enabling information exchange and synergies between aerospace companies. To find out how SAMPI can help you learn more about advanced materials and processes, visit SAMPI's website at nasampe.org or consider attending the SAMPI 2018 Technical Conference and Expo in Long Beach, California. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one. Zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Today I'm talking to Kim Tobias Kohn, who's a lecturer in aerospace engineering at the University of the West of England. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while because Kim is a really fascinating guy. Apart from his main vocation as a university lecturer, he's also a pilot and runs a startup business that manufactures electric skateboards. Why electric skateboards? Well, as you will hear in this conversation, Kim wants to fundamentally change the way we travel within cities and between them. While electric ska- skateboards can help to make inner city travel more sustainable, he's also working on the cusp of the emerging field of electric aviation. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, right, electric aviation. We've hardly solved the range problem in electric cars. How are we going to keep an aircraft in the air for a couple of hours? And of course you'd be right. Electric aviation is a completely different can of worms. Well, Kim has been working on these problems with his students at the University of the West of England, and they're currently retrofitting a single seat glider with batteries and a nose-mounted propeller, and are planning to fly their design later this year. What I hope will become clear in this episode is that advancements in battery and motor technology brought on by the drone revolution are opening doors for electric passenger aircraft. Much like the miniaturization of sensors for smartphones facilitated innovation in the drone space, so are new battery systems and brushless motors developed for drones now creating new possibilities for electric passenger aircraft. In fact, the recent partnership between Airbus, Rolls-Royce and Siemens to develop the eFan hybrid electric flight demonstrator shows that the vision of electric aviation is not just a pipe dream. So in this episode, Kim and I discuss the regulatory framework and technical challenges behind electric aviation, as well as Kim's current work on designing an electric glider, his vision for creating a student-led electric aircraft competition, and much, much more. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Kim Tobias Kohn. Okay, so I'm here with Kim Kohn. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Lena. Um, so I will have introduced you a little bit in the introduction, but uh, just perhaps in your, in your own words, how did you end up in your current role as a lecturer in aerospace engineering at the uh, University of the West of England? 
I will try to cut a long story short here. Um, essentially, I did both my B Eng and M Eng degrees with the University of the West of England, and um, upon my master's thesis, um, they just asked me whether I would like to continue that in another year's time and worth of work. And I said, yeah, that that's you know, it's a great give me another year and I can finish my thesis and and actually make the, the practical part or the practical side of it, which was a flying wing UAV. And the role just enabled me to finish that and to fly it and to accomplish the, the practical side of things. And um, that was one year. And then after that one year, we sort of extended and sort of boosted up the role a little bit. And I said yes. And so I ended up in, in essentially that role in doing this very project, which we hopefully talk about a little bit later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll get into electric aircraft in just a little bit. So you said you worked on UAVs to begin with. So I guess that is mostly probably an electric aircraft. But how did, how did you end up in UAVs? Were you working on the control side or what, what were you working on? Good question. UAVs. Um, UAVs in general, um, I, I got tried try to go back a little bit in my into my youth, and I sort of started as an RC flying kid with the entire aerospace sector kind of thing. So I think I picked up what we called RC flying back in the day, where where RC planes weren't called drones and UAVs, where it's just RC planes uh-huh. and everyone clever. You have to steer them sort of by by thinking. Um, and sort of that evolved, and within two or three years of picking that, that up at the age of 11, 12, I then started gliding at the age of 14, um, and that was a, a thing that, that went alongside. So the what we today call UAV sector was always sort of a natural a natural thing that I just did. And, you know, the, once you pick up aerospace studies, you then understand that the relation between a small aircraft and a, a large aircraft is essentially a Reynolds number and a couple of other physical, you know, physical relationships. And so, yeah, that, that was sort of, I grew into the UV sector, if, if you know what I mean, on that regard. And that's just, you, you, you back up and you fundament that with a degree. And then that's sort of where my UAV expertise came from. Yeah, yeah as you said before, the, before we started recording that you were very much a tinkerer at heart and that you view your education as you know a, a great backbone but that you really enjoy building things that's right so is that where the the rc side of things came into is that it's basically in your dna if you say you started doing this at a very early age i think you found the right words for it yeah absolutely i think that that's how would i describe myself yeah yeah no, you know it's fascinating and then you, and then you, you mentioned that you you started gliding when you were 14 that's right so is um i mean you are currently and we'll, we'll get into this you are working on electric gliders, so, right. so gliders that have an electric power plant added to them. Um, so you're doing this, I guess you're now also doing gliding with students at the University of West of England. So how, so you, you started gliding at an early age. How did you then you know, take that to, to, to the university? How, how did that come, come to be? I think, uh, trying to address that as, as precisely as I can, when we talk about the university and where my gliding comes in there, I think it is reflected in my teaching as well. So I, I tend to reflect as much teaching and wherever I can reflect the teaching onto practical aircraft-based solutions or examples, really. So it's the dynamics, the motion is is very strongly linked to what we do in lectures. So I'm, I'm trying to give them examples, ideas. I have a couple of, just as an example, video tutorials where, where I put a glider through a, a tight f- a flight test program and say that's a fugoid, you know, that's that's a bank stability. So they, they get to see what it actually means, what the numbers mean in real life. So I think this is where I can add the practical side of things into teaching. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's really cool. So I guess... That the students are then basically, as you said, they get the combination of seeing the theoretical side of things and how that directly translates into into practice. Yeah, yeah I wish right. I had had that as an undergraduate <laughs> student. That sounds amazing. Pleased to hear. Um, yeah. So, 
I guess let's let's go and start talking about our main topic, which is electric aviation. Yeah. So I think many people will have heard, you know, about Tesla and about envi the environmental kind of push to to go from from gasoline burning cars to to, to electric uh, to electric cars. But why would you want to do that with with, with aviation? Why wh why is why is that? Why would you want to take that leap? Let me give you a number. Um, I, I researched in in sort of in relation to a, a, con, a conference talk I gave recently, and I discovered that we burn around eight thousand liters of jet fuel per second on the globe. So the unit is you know it's it's per second. So since the time we started, it's roughly about a million to two million liters burned. And it's not so much that the CO the trouble with that is that we put the CO two right there where it's most harmful into the ozone layer because planes are normally traveling at that height. And there is no natural layer of, of trees or nature can't deal with this. It's just, it's just harmful where we put it. So obviously talking a very small scale at the minute, but I, I would like to rattle that number a little bit and bring it down. And I always make that comparison to cars where cars haven't developed and evolved in 10, 15, 20 years. They developed over a century and even longer than that. So I think with, with this very project, I'm trying to, to just talk to people and make people aware of the fact that we need to get going into the future in terms of clean aviation, just to bring that number down a little bit. Of course, there's there's other way bigger issues than the, the, the toxides and the, the CO2 output from airplanes. There's industry, and we don't wanna, don't wanna touch that because it, it will be a long night if we do that. But just in my field of expertise, I like to rattle that number a little bit mm -hmm. and reduce that. Yeah, and I think you, you said before that that is I think it probably ties up a lot of your other interests as well, because you were saying that you're actually you're working on electric skateboards yeah, as right. well. So I think it sounds like that this is kind of like an all-encompassing vision for you that you want to reduce our our footprint. Uh, Absolutely, on the I, I, want, I want to bring into people's minds where we could save and and bring them push technology to support our everyday being and an everyday getting around and the the way we travel, may it be on the ground or in the air. So it's yeah you. It's a bit of a lifestyle. It became a lifestyle for me. To do yeah, that. and and so, I mean, the the aircraft industry has very strict airworthiness requirements, and of yes. course, this is for good reason. I mean, the aircraft industry is one of the to fly an aircraft is one of the safest modes means of transport um, around, and to a large degree, that is because of the the stringent airworthy requirements. Now, if you're saying that you you're trying to work on electric aircraft, and with the students you you're working on electric gliders. Can you actually just build an aircraft and fly it? What is the what are the regulations around building electric aircraft or developing electric aircraft? Yes, so that's a very big topic we open. I think we will come back to that in in every sort of shape and man in next in in the, in the close future. So, essentially, you're absolutely right what you're saying. It's a very limited and rightly so aspect of engineering. So it's I always make the the comparison of you know if if you build a car or a a design or a, a, a study of a car, of a new electric car, if something goes wrong, you essentially stop and you walk away from it. Um, with aviation, it doesn't quite work so well on that regard. So it, absolutely, the, the safety regulations and the also the, the certification process of getting something into the air are very li limited, very strictly strictly kept, and that's good. That's that's rightly so. So the I would like to... to turn out a little bit more on this topic. And the Americans have something we understand as the experimental class for aircraft. So they, it's something that you can fly with a couple of limitations, but long story short, you get something into the air rather quickly. And here in Europe, we haven't got 
a comparable or something that will compare to that. We are very much limited to our CSs and, and all, all that sort of business. Now, in a working as a working group, the Royal Aeronautical Society is is a very strong accumulation of people who want to push something um, and push exactly that. And about, I don't want to lie to you, I think it goes six to seven years back, Within a special group or specialized group of people in the in within the society, they said, "Look, we've got a lot of momentum within the UK um, in terms of aircraft development, green aircraft development, just just novel technology, which is essentially held back by very expensive certification and long wired certification processes." Um, so this group formed a larger working group with the Civil Aviation Authority saying, look, can we do something about this? And I'm, I'm always referring to the experimental class. It's distinctly different, but that was their sort of their sort of hook where they wanted to grab onto. So they developed a scaffolding or a legal framework called the E-Conditions, and the E-Conditions were released in 2014, November 2014, at the uh, Light Aircraft Conference at the Royal Society. And essentially this, this framework says that you can pretty much take any airframe you like, and below 2,000 kilos takeoff weight, and do pretty much any changes you like and want to it and fly it, with a certain limitation, but also with a certain, with a very distinct, how should I put it, quality and safety management process. So they introduced something called competent persons. And if you are a competent person, you can overlook a build stage, a process stage um, of any aircraft may be undertaken by a university, by private people, by a company. So. We as a university are extremely pleased that it only allowed us to do that before before November 2014. There's no chance to even think about that because we don't have the power, the money, the time, and all that you know, all the other parts of that in order to undertake this. So yeah, they they formed those regulations, and they actually for a regulatory framework, they're really easy to go through. It's 50, I think it's 58 pages document. You, you read through quite easily. So long story short, these e-conditions then, and I attended this conference obviously, and so I can talk about it vividly. Um, it just came as a heaven sent because that idea of the electric glider has been with me for I think now it's the better part of eight or nine years. Where as you said earlier, I just pulled my expertise in UAVs and in, in RC technology, as well as being a glider pilot, to see essentially with the introduction of lithium-based battery system into the into the RC flying world, there it was a breakthrough, absolutely. And we, we also talked about oh, then electric brushless, so electronic electronically commutated outrunner motors is the right word to say. Um, sort of shot into the scene and they are extremely power dense. So with that with that propulsion technology and the battery technology moving into the lithium area, it was a massive game changer. And you would you would believe it or not, but the spread and and the yeah the, the spread between RC technology and and the technology we would need to to power this glider, the, the gap isn't that big any longer. Cause because the, the UAV sector developed so vastly in the last say four to five, maybe even six years that the technology is now pretty much overlapping. Mm -hmm. Well, let me just get that right. So, because that's really fascinating. You're saying that because the UAVs, because that sector has seen yeah. such a big growth, which I, I mean, I, I guess I've, I've seen actually quite a couple of startups in, you know, in, in, in California working on lots, many of, about, yeah. Yeah, lots of novel ways of using UAVs. So yeah. that a lot of the technology there has basically now, is now driving uh, innovation in Bigger aircraft, bigger Absolutely electric right. aircraft. Yeah, outside and, and you, that. So you met, you mentioned lithium batteries. Mm -hmm. So that was so basically the energy density of these batteries has yes. essentially gone up. And then uh, new motors. Is, yeah. is that right? Is there exactly. anything special about these about these new motors? What is kind of like the 
the, uh, the, the kind of special feature about these models? Yeah, the snitch about those. Essentially, <clears throat> it, it's all about, you mentioned it perfectly correctly, the power density of the battery system went up. So that means per, per weight unit, we can just carry more energy, which is exactly what we need. Um, and the brushless motors in comparison to the brush motors is, is simply they don't have any brushes. Mm -hmm. Sounds very simple, but that, that's, that's the way forward. So you don't have um, efficiency losses by, by putting power onto your, onto your rotator by brushes, which were then in themselves, are, they're, they're a lossful business. So that means you've got lots of frictional losses and sort of heat transfer losses and all the rest. So long story short, you can run a brushless um, motor at a sweet spot of about 90, 91% of efficiency. A brushed motor, if you push it and get everything out of it, you probably end up at the late 60s. Mm -hmm. It's just that 30% extra gain of, over the system. Now you need quite clever power electronics to run brushless motors, but also this sector moved on in the last couple of years a lot. So controllers which handle a brushless motor, essentially our, our controller for the electric aircraft handling 25 kilowatts of power weighs sub two kilograms. And that that's a very, that's a, that's a good breakthrough as well. In the last couple of years, so five to six years, the power electronics moved on quite distinctly as well. Right, so I mean, building an electric, when I hear you know people building electric cars, the leap from electric car to electric aircraft, you know, that isn't a small leap. So it's That's all right. well and good that you're building an electric car, but an electric aircraft sounds like a whole other business. So, so in, that, in that sense, are, are these innovations in, in terms of battery power and, 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 and propeller power, or engine power, is that enough? Or is, there, or is there something extra that you need to be able to, 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 to get it to a scale where we can maybe have passenger aircraft mm -hmm. that are fully electric? What are some of the technological roadblocks? Is it purely just making lighter structures or is it entirely new engines? Like how, what, what does the roadmap look in terms of developing the technology? You're really hitting a nerve here, uh, Rana, definitely. Um, the, to, to cut a very long story short and, and something that, that many people will tear their hair about um, these days is it's literally the energy density of the batteries. That's a very limiting factor. Um, yes, of course, you, you said the right thing as well. Lightening structures and lightening every single individual part of an airframe is exactly what will then be of help to that process of flying longer um, or enhance the climb rates and just make, make the entire aircraft more efficient. But the real issue, and this is why we don't see an electric A320 or, or Boeing electrified yet, is simply because we cannot put as much energy into onto the aircraft in, order, in, in terms of how much we need. So to give you that number, um, and it's also numbers I discovered for, for that conference talk I gave very recently, is if you take a kilogram of, of top-spec lithium batteries, which have been developing over the last 15 years in this, on industrial scale, um, and you take a kilogram of, of fuel, say jet fuel, the kilogram of fuel will carry 50 more times energy than the batteries, the kilo of batteries would do. So this is essentially your number you have to deal with. So you, we can get away with very inefficient piston engines in small aircraft. The efficiency is less than 10% until the actual power produced hits the air after the propeller. Um, we get away with this because the fuel is so, there's so much energy in the fuel. And we have to be very sensible and very careful about how we're using it from the batteries. So this is really, this is, this is, the bottleneck for electric aviation is how how will we get the energy on board the aircraft and there's another big thing in in manned and commercial aviation is that we don't burn that energy we don't burn weight we don't lose weight and you know if, if you talk airliner business the takeoff mass is certainly distinctly different from from the landing mass so you always have a very heavy structure here 
with if it's electric. So for now, it's it's going to be in my. If you ask me about my personal opinion, when when we when are we going to be seeing electric airliners? I think it's like in the car industry, we'll have hybrids first. So it will be a very good idea to run one jet engine at its sweet spot, because also those those systems have their sweet spots in terms of efficiency. Run this into a generator, have a backup battery system that boosts for takeoff. But then you have this, this entire system very well balanced over the entire flight, and you get away with less. But it's essentially to break it below the line, it's how much energy you can actually get onto the aircraft and how much energy do you, requ- do you require to fly a mission and that batteries are terrible. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. So, I, I mean, perhaps with, with things like Tesla's Gigafactory, if they, if they manage to bring the costs down perhaps of, of a unit of lithium battery and then maybe f- further developments in, in the lithium yeah. space, then perhaps you will increase the energy density as well. But perhaps maybe exploring the solution of what, what, what would happen if we just got rid of the batteries uh, or re- minimize the amount of batteries and perhaps use something like solar power solar power on the wings would would that be an option or is that entirely just it's it's really interesting because exactly what the topics you mentioned is, is something obviously deeply researched for our project so it, you have to make the the weight the weight difference here for a glider let's talk about the glider a little bit if that's okay mm-hmm. um on a glider it works very well using solar power and solar energy simply because you've got a highly efficient airframe that means Say, if we talk about, I hope all our listeners have got a 172 Cessna, the, the, the general aviation aircraft in mind and how it looks like. Very inefficient airframe. We, let's talk about the glide ratio for a second. I think the glide ratio of a 172 is about 1 to 7. That means 1 kilometer height, you get 7 kilometers of range before you land back on the ground. The, the airframe we're using, the glider, that's 1 to 37. So this is a, an indicator of how much energy you have to put into the system to keep it straight and level flying, to keep it where it should be in the air. So the, gl- the glider works just really well because it's a very efficient airframe. Now, airliners these days, are, for obvious reasons, are very efficient as well. So an A320 would, for example, do a glide ratio of 1 to 20, 1 to 21. They're very good. But it, it's the sheer energy you need for takeoff, for the climb rates. We, we need to climb. These aircraft have to have quite a, a distinct climb rate just to get... It's, it's air traffic management, etc. You need, need a very steep climb rate. And this is all, this is very energy consuming. So we're getting into the problem where, again, energy is limited. Now, when we talk about the glider, because the energy requirement is so slow, so, so low, we need about five kilowatts to fly horizontal. It's nothing at all. I mean, if, if you go down at 70 miles an hour with your car on the motorway, just to overcome the drag, the aerodynamic resistance, you probably need about 30, 35 kilowatts, depending on the car. Us doing that speed in the glider is only five kilowatts. So this is where, where that difference comes in. So all of a sudden, we can then think about thin film solar cell applications on the wings, which will give us back about 2.3, 2.4 kilowatts. So we're nearly making half of what we need back from just flying horizontally. But then in relation, scaled up to an airliner, you, that ratio just expands a lot because you've got a much heavier structure. You have a much higher wing loading, and essentially you need as much more energy. So solar is, is out of the way for it, no chance. Fuel cells... Again, storing the hydrogen for it, which is currently the, the highest energy-containing method we can we can use fuel cells with, is just impossible. It, it needs to be pressurized. That means it requires space. It will it will all go haywire. So right now, we really we are bound to jet fuel, to fossil fuels, simply because it's energy per weight and volume unit. That's that's where it goes after. And for the glider itself, ultimately, my personal aim would be to have the solar cells equipped with. Uh, 
sorry, the wings equipped with solar cells, just to, to power back into the system. And you can then, if you fly as a glider and use a couple of thermals, you shut the motor down completely, that means you recharge full time, so you can sort of sawtooth your way um, throughout the day, if you like. Um, so yeah, on, on a small scale, it all, it all checks out quite nicely, but as soon as we get big and talking about commercial airliners, the maths don't, it's just the energy density. Really. Yeah, I guess, I mean, uh, the, the argument of scale is, I think, always a good one, and that even as, you know when sometimes we're looking at biomimetics looking at birds and we're trying to get inspiration from birds to see how they do things yeah but a lot of the times these concepts work on the scale of a bird but they don't right. work at the scale of an aircraft so yep. the fact of looking into how these technologies scale up from the small scale to the large scale is a very important factor absolutely but yeah delving a bit deeper into, into the glider so you've, you've got this project at the university of west of england mm -hmm. about building an, an electrically powered glider so yep. You've got a gliding glider. You've got an airframe. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about about this story. How did this project come about? What are you trying to do with uh, with this glider? And, and what does it look like? I mean, you, you talked about the the solar panels, but like, how is it powered? And you know, what what are your ideas about about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, yeah, a little bit about the project. So the idea stuck with me or got stuck in my head about eight nine years ago, where I said I, I sort of combined the thoughts of the RC flying world and flying gliders. And um, so back then, we thought about a good friend of myself, very gifted engineer. We thought about how, how could we do this? Where would we put the motor, et cetera, et cetera. And back in the day, for drag purposes and for a couple of other reasons, we thought the nose-mounted propeller is quite a nice design. Now, back in the day, I haven't even picked up my study. So, you know, no chance I could actually go in and do that. It was simply an idea. And then throughout the studies, um, obviously then did my UAV dissertations, et cetera, et cetera, and you did literature research. And then I came across a company um, who actually went and did a commercial product or made a commercial product with a nose-mounted propeller called FES. Um, so I saw I saw our ideas just, just taking off really, which is nice to do. But in terms of talking about Project ETA-1 and a glider, I think because I'm quite from a practical background, when we talk about making engineers or... or putting engineers onto their way through university. I think it's a very, very important part of their, their engineering life to have problem-based learning, to say it in academic terms. And I think the it's, a, for starters, a very exciting project. The students really like the fact that it's an actual aircraft and my work, yeah, really matters in that regard. So it's not like I'm, I'm building a little RC plane, which you do with them as well, but it's, it's that that kick where, where they see there will be a human flying this. And I'll have to put my mind to a state where I'm thinking a little bit outside the box and very in, in much into detail to safety aspects. And so everything we're doing, of course, is highly, highly prone to safety. For example, the battery system there, there's, I hope our listeners will follow that, lithium polymer systems and there's lithium ion systems. And Tesla actually started lithium polymer pouch cells, but they're not very safe. They're a bit more, they, they've got an advantage in the energy density because they sacrifice weight of the shell and of the packaging of the cell for safety, unfortunately. So Tesla moved away and went, I think right now they went away again from the 18650 industrial standard. Um, people who vape electric cigarettes will know those cells very, very vividly. Um, but Tesla made, I think, a 7020 cell. So it's slightly different format, but they essentially took that development away and said, we, we optimize it a little bit, so they do their own thing now. But the lithium-ion cells will not catch fire and, and not set neighbors off in terms of 
when something happens, it's fairly safe, put it that way. So just on that note, does that mean yeah. that the, uh, the the batteries that caught fire on the Dreamliner, were they of, they of the polymer type? Do you know that by I any chance? I cannot tell you. Okay. I'm, I'm actually, actually don't know. Okay. I don't want to put any anyone or anything here into, into bad light. I can't tell you whether that was polymer or... Uh, in all fairness, I would be very surprised if it would. Okay. Then someone clearly hadn't done their, their safety okay. their safety measurements right. Um, but the, the essential problem is what you just said. They we, we contain a lot of energy in a very small volume. And I always make that example because I think it's just true. For me, per definition, a battery is a bomb because a lot of energy in a small volume is essentially what, what's called a bomb. So we want to make sure that our bomb is fairly safely contained. Um, so that that's why in, in our project, ETA1, we decided for starters to go with a safe battery system. Yes, we sacrificed a bit of the weight performance, but it's first and foremost that we will keep we keep the entire project safe. And then, yes, we started, the project actually started two and a half years ago on campus, so we got the airframe. And then for me, it was then just down to integrate that as much as possible into the teaching so curriculum. We actually teach using the project on the project or with the project in four modules right now, which is kind of nice from a university perspective. But also there is this, I would say, formula student approach. Um, and I think that many, many of our listeners actually heard about formula students and, and this Europe-wide um, sort of competition between universities, building race cars and then racing them once a year against each other. Yeah, I think in America it's called Formula SAE. But I oh, think, okay, right. I think the, the concept is the same, that students at universities build race cars and then they, they race them against each other in acceleration tests and in design tests and things exactly. like that. Exactly. So you're thinking about doing something similar like that for aviation? It would be my dream, absolutely. So, uh, of course, safety first and foremost, but it's it will be a wonderful experience for the students. I mean, all the students who either work on the project because they want to, so on a voluntary basis, or within the modules, they enjoy it because they see where, they see where the numbers are going. And in engineering, I think that's quite a, a nice experience to have to actually relate. I just calculated the, you know, the, the stability margin for the, the longitudinal axis for this aircraft. Now let's go away and test flight. That that's sort of where 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 all these these puzzle bits come come together, and they really enjoy that. So I would hope that our aerospace students will have, if this grows bigger, that more universities might take it up, and that we can probably have a a, a flight race season or whatever you call it, or push push the airframes through certain certain maneuvers, flight tests, routines, and just evaluate them against each other. I mean, there, there's many, many possible ways we could do that. Yeah, and I mean, I think, um, I mean, but before we started recording, I, we, I, we talked about in back in Germany between World War One and World War Two, yep. uh, Theodor von Karman, he was actually running gliding competitions because Germany wasn't allowed to build motor-powered planes. That's right. And to a lot of, uh, in a lot of ways, the aerodynamics that they developed on those gliders in, in a research setting then fed into a lot of the World War II fighters. So That's perhaps right. do you think that you could then, some of the innovations that might come out of an electric formula student aviation competition, do you think that they could then feed into to perhaps what the big companies like Airbus and Boeing are doing? I think that's a wonderful idea. And I think there's a lot of potential in what you just said. Yeah, I, I personally, I, I support this idea a lot. And I think it's, we now just started doing formula student electric. So they, they start moving into the electric domain. And it's it's the entire sort of it's the entire product chain. So innovation could be then, especially in in the light of the conditions, we've got a lot of freedom in aviation right now. And I think to as many people as I speak, not very many have heard about the conditions. And I think that's a very very unique within Europe, a very unique frame of legislation we can work in. And especially the UK is in a very very good position to be to be leading here. And I hope that we can you know at some point in the future just 
make contact with a couple other universities and say, look, when are you ready to fly? Have you got something in the pipeline? Let's let's go and do that. That would be wonderful because it's technology pushing and you, you get industry in and you, 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 push the, you push the envelope, essentially. So are other European countries doing similar things or did you say that they, they are not working on these things as of yet? VE conditions are unique in the UK right now. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so the UK is definitely pushing. Absolutely. Being taking yeah. a pioneering role. Okay, and in terms of what, what the students are actually doing on this, on this airframe, I guess you have one airframe. But the in students, fact, we've got two. Oh, we've got two airframes. <laughs> Great. But the students, I guess, they rotate around year, you know, from year to year. So it's how we work. They, yes. So are they putting innovations, or, or they're, are they working on concepts for the aircraft, putting it on, flying it, and then they, they get taken off for the next year, or, or how does that cycle work? Is it project based? How does it work? It's it's a it's a bit of everything, to be honest. So right now, until this point in time, we had fifteen individual projects. So that means B inch and M inch. Um, projects on the glider on little things like have we thought about powering our our main landing gear wheel for better traction and reducing the the takeoff distance or or special I would say special parts where are we looking to structures for example how are we going to mount the motor the motor mount what forces are we are we experiencing you know doing FEA on it run, running simulations doing actual physical testing so there's many sub projects we gave away to final year students um, and then, of course, the problem is once our students are most mature and, and best in their, in their field of expertise, they leave because that's what we do. We are a university. Um, but the way I structured the team is that all of the students work pretty much hand in hand together. So if we, we even got foundation, year, foundation students on, on the team. So they will then sort of do an internship within the team and, and sort of look over the shoulders of the, you know, say the leaders and the lead engineers within speaking within our team. So I'd like to keep this ball rolling of the students who are pretty new to the university and to studying. So it's the foundation in first and second years, they are, they are sort of shadowing what, what's going on and they're contributing. But at some point they'll learn just through being there and they enjoy that because they they always take away something from each session so then when whenever they get mature they sort of pass the ball on and we, we keep this wheel wheel moving that we just lose our our good students by the time they finish their degree but that's a natural natural happening we can't stop this yeah and, I, and as, a, as the end product then just so that i have like a picture in my head sure so You've got a, is it a propeller then mounted on, on the front nose and then there's batteries distributed throughout the aircraft or, Essentially or how does correct. it look like? Are there solar panels on the wings yet or is that something for the future? Let, exactly. Let me let me talk to you where, because we didn't even fly it electrically. So it's all in the planning. Well, it's not, it's beyond the planning stage. We are now starting to make the components we need to make. So we essentially got the entire powertrain that starts from propeller, motor, controller for the motor and the batteries. And now it's just essentially integrating that into the airframe. And once we flew electrically, it will, right now, the maths check out to give us about one hour and 20 minutes flight time solely on battery power. And that's only that one passenger. That's one passenger as okay. well. It's, it's unfortunately a single seater. Would it be wonderful to have a twin seater, but then the costs would have just sort of exponentially exploded. And we, we yeah, there's a business case behind it. So it's a single seater for now. Um, but once this is able to fly, I hope that we gain so much momentum in industry and in the press that we're also prone then to funding. And what I like to do is then put the solar cells on as a next step because these are essentially supreme range extenders. They don't weigh, well, they don't weigh anything when I say that. The entire solar system, the PV system, is sub 10 kilograms and giving us about 2.4 kilowatts of power. 
that's amazing. For anyone who's a little bit into, into the game, that's brilliant. For an airframe that weighs just shy of 400 kilos, 10 kilos extra to make that amount of power is brilliant. So unfortunately, it's a big price tag with, those, with, those, with that system. I think it's about $300,000. So it's, it's pushing technology, but it's there. It's out there on the market. We can, we can use it. But yeah, technology is, when, when it's kind of on the, on the forefront, it's not cheap. But essentially, once we reach the stage, even without the solar cells, so we can fly on a repetitive basis, we've got a reliable system, a reliable airframe, it then becomes a flying research platform. So for example, if a student says, all right, I'm going to look into something fancy like wingtip um, vortex energy regain systems. Um, we can then start manufacturing wings. Let's put them on and actually test fly, test fly those those values or those those research topics. Um, or you can you can think broadly. You can essentially change pretty much anything you want to the airframe. You can you can do it. You can start putting new autopilot systems on. You can start testing collision avoid systems. You always got this wonderful backup of you've got a pilot in this aircraft and you've got it fully manually controlled, but you can then start thinking about automating flight or look into collision and avoid systems on camera basis on whatever you want to do. There's, there's, it's just then a flying lab. And that's the point where I want to have this aircraft. That'll be wonderful. Yeah, that's a great idea. So you're basically using it as a, as a test bed. You could yes. even use it as a test bed for other innovations that you might want to put, want to put in an aircraft. So yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's really cool. And do you then think you said you talked about press then if you do, so you haven't flown this aircraft yet, you're still not electrically, not electrically, yeah. but you've just just a standard gliding flight. You've, yeah. you've flown it in that way. Data so, acquisition. Yes. Oh, data acquisition. Yeah, okay, absolutely. great. And then is if once you have, let's say you, you have your first electric flight, um, do you think that, uh, how would this then kind of motivate maybe Boeing or Airbus? Do you think that at some point they will say, hey, look, guys, let's set up this Formula Aviation and they'll fund it? Because I think that they have probably have a lot to gain from such a competition. I guess um, so, yeah. Do you think that that would be an impetus for them to get uh, involved in this project? Personally, I, I, I'm convinced. And for, for speaking for them, I can only hope so. <laughs> I think that would be a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, we want to make it a massive party once we, once we do the first flight and announce it and, you know, have press around and media around and do the entire social media thing as well. Um, but it's just getting getting the idea out about, you know, innovation happens not only in, in top tech level industry, but we are, we are innovating in, in universities everywhere. You know, many, many universities do different projects. Maybe in avionics we can think about, I, I don't have to fly this. It can be a UAV. Just, just putting this out there. So essentially, you can then replace about 90 kilos of pilot weight with batteries. So all of a sudden, if you want an unmanned, talking very, very far at future now, but if you want an unmanned sensor platform, or if you think about temporary cell phone network support for festivals or whatever, you just send this thing out there and it will do the job for you. Mm, so there's, there's many, many ways in the future you can actually go about this. Right. No, that's, yeah, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, what would, would, you, would you say that, so the UK is taking a leading role in this. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just wondering, are you aware of any projects, um, let's say in Airbus or Boeing and some of the established companies, do they just think that this is some sort of pipe dream or are they actually taking you serious to an extent or they're actually also putting mm -hmm. research funds towards the, this topic? What does the, the field look like in the, in, the big, in the big companies? I've got a couple of internals, which I'm actually not sure what I'm allowed to talk about. So I'll be, I'll be very careful what I say now. But um, there is, we all heard about the EFAN Airbus made. Mm -hmm. And I think the EFAN is, is a leading 
research platform for something bigger they've got in the pipeline now. I think that's as far as I can lean myself out the window saying that. So there is there is certainly research being done as we speak and, and things being manufactured as we speak in order to move into commercial aviation. Do you, do you know what the idea was behind the e, behind the e-fan? So it, was this a hybrid aircraft or was it fully electric? I think the e-fan always supposed to be fully electric. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Uh-huh. So and there, there's also a couple of other smaller projects um, Airbus run internally, which go very, very much alongside what we're doing right now okay. on, a, on a small scale. Delving a bit deeper about what, what the side comment that you just made about having universities looking at, you know, a distributed network almost of universities researching smaller topics that mm-hmm. is not necessarily just the big, the big companies working uh, at the cutting edge. Uh, when the air, airspace industry first started with you know the Wright brothers back in the beginning of the 20th century, yeah. it was a lot of daredevils basically just building the aircraft in a shed somewhere, then flying it themselves. That's a lot right. of them died. Um, do you think that perhaps such an approach will work well for electric aviation that we say, let's just have this network of distributed small tinkering companies that all work on their little projects and then the one best solution will basically emerge? Or do you think it will be more kind of like a top-down approach? It's a very good question you raise. And I think on, on this very topic of electric flying, we actually inverse the pyramid. I think we're doing it the other way around. I think this goes from exactly what you said, from Fred in the shed, as we tend to say, up to the larger companies. Because it's, put it that way, when we talk about the Wright brothers and then breaking the sound barrier in 1943, I think it was, it was very, very much pioneering work. We don't do that these days. We are not, we're not pioneering sort of un, untested grounds. We essentially shaving a couple of percent of performance here and there, and we're pulling together top-level technology, which essentially is that that's what this project is all about. Scramming together top-tech technology where you, for starters, wouldn't have thought of that could work in, in that regard. So I think because large companies, and correct me if I'm wrong there, it's just often they're not agile enough to run with the forefront of technology. It's just by the setup. It's large corporations. They've got their standards. They've got their settings. They've got their procurement procedures. It's all a little bit, there's more momentum to that, put it that way, until something really kicks off. And of course, they're making money on selling very, very highly safely, highly safe systems, call it airliners. So up until something reaches the actual market point, this takes a long, long time. So with electric aviation, my own, my personal opinion is that really small companies, universities, Fred and the Shed, they can do amazing things, and the they will underlie this research, but underlie natural selection. So really good systems will work, will fly. Um, they will get sort of ins- they get inspected. They will you know people will talk about it, and I think that that standards will come from many small companies which do research, and then will form into. I would say a scaffolding and something we, we understand as a CS documents. So it will probably be my, my personal opinion is pyramid but flipped. Right. Yeah. That that I mean, yeah, that does make sense. I would I would expect it's almost to me it sounds very much not you know, not to misuse the word paradigm shift, but it does sound <laughs> to, in a lot of ways that a lot of the the when, when you as you said, when you're relying on the kind of very uh, the the energy density of, of jet fuel. You can get away with having, you know, 10% efficiency at the propeller level, right? That's right. While when when you then shift the system to something else, now you really have to scramble 
and as you say, aggregate all these new technologies That's right. um, to try to, to, to come to, to get to a solution that actually works under these stricter conditions. Yeah. But maybe looking at you know looking in the uh, the crystal ball a little bit, how, where do you think uh, this will this will go in in terms of you know when do you think an electric uh, airliner will will be hitting the market? Uh, is it a matter of let's say ten years, or is it more fifty years out? What, what, what do you think? I'll push push it towards the fifty years. Yeah, I am. I am not an expert in chemistry and and battery t- technology. I think I know the the systems out there pretty well, but I can't tell you where new avenues are or where, what the, where the research and and the the products might go within a couple couple of years or maybe even a decade. Um, but it will certainly be fully electric airliners will be uh, a further future. So say. 40, 50 years is my personal guess. Right. And just, just, to, just to finish the conversation off, just as the last question, sure. how, how do you think, where do you want to take uh, this, how do you see this project developing at the University West of England? What are your, your, near, your near-term goals in terms of developing the, the, the electric glider? It's flying. We, we want to fly it now as soon as possible. That, that's the idea. We've been, it's, it's taken a long time to set all the, the internal procedures up for about two and a half years. Now the team is as strong as I've never seen a team before. Highly motivated students. I sort of have to, to send them off and tell them, have some Christmas, have some break. Don't think about a project too much. Um, but it, their motivation really, really gets me, gets me flying as well. And that's very nice to see. So we want to fly as soon as we can. Do you have a deadline in mind that perhaps... Is it 2018? I'm, it uh, I'm doing my best to do it 2018. Great. Yes, that, that's the aim of the game. I'd fly love, within this year. I would love to have an invite to see this aircraft oh, flying if, if it does. That you would will. be absolutely amazing. Pleasure. Um, so, yeah, so just to finish off, where can people find more out about the, the electric aviation that you're doing here, the research uh, at UWE? We're actually running, talking about outreach, as been before we started the recording, and we've got a website called FET LIU ETA 1 and the best thing would be is to just google ETA minus 1 electric aircraft. I think this is how you get forwards or UW electric aircraft will get you to to a couple of, of hits as well on the research on the research site. So this is a website the students run. I only have a little bit input to that and this is simply just our I would say our blog and our we've got a couple of videos out there you can learn more about the project about the background what are the challenges what what is project project ETA1 look like so that's our website is certainly we run a Facebook site and a YouTube channel as well so there's lots of entertaining videos out there you can you can start watching following if you want. Yeah I will definitely link to those in the in the show notes and I oh, have I've, notes. I've seen it. your YouTube videos as well. I think yeah, the vlog. I've I've seen that, and there's some very cool videos there. So I I recommend all listeners to check out those videos. It's brilliant. Glad to hear. Yeah. So yeah, thanks a lot for having the conversation, Kim. I wish you, you. wish you all the best. It's really fascinating what you're doing. Um, Thank you. And uh, yeah, you have the last word. Oh, Ryan, it's been my pleasure. I mean, obviously the website did well because you found us and you, you you asked for this interview, which really is is an absolute pleasure for me. So thanks very much for coming around, spending your time, and recording this. So greatly appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Thank and you. thank you for all our, to all our listeners to listen to us for, for that long. That's great. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Thank you very thank much. You. If you want to learn more about the topics that Kim and I discussed, you can find show notes at airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. There you will also find more information on our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering, and the World Leading Materials Technology Conference that SAMPI is organizing in Long Beach, California. Also make sure to check out Kim's videos on his electric glider project on YouTube. His channel is simply called Kim Kohn, K-I-M-K-O-H-N. And just as a quick reminder, if you can spare a minute, I would be super grateful if you could tell me on iTunes how you're liking the show. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.